So tonight I'd like to talk about the liberation or the freedom that can come about through non-clinging, through letting go. And I want to start off with uh, a passage in one of the Buddhist texts, the Buddhist text that holds the teachings of the Buddha that we uh, that have come down to us over, over the years. And someone approached the Buddha in one of the texts and asked him to summarize his teaching in one phrase. And he said that he could, and he told them this. And I want to first say it in Pali, because I think it's really lovely sometimes hearing the Pali words, hearing the teachings in the original language. Just one phrase. The phrase is sabe dama nalam abinewe saya. Sabe dama nalam abinewe saya. And what that means is, what the Buddha summarized was, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. And the Buddha went on to emphasize the point that whoever heard this teaching had heard all of my teaching. Whoever practiced this teaching had practiced all of my teaching. And whoever received the fruits of practicing this teaching had received all the fruits of my teaching. So truly, this phrase is the heart of the Buddhist teaching, of Buddhist practice. And so since it's the heart, I wanted to elaborate a little bit more on what this is and what this means and how we can relate it to our own practice, to our own understanding and integration of these teachings, because that's essentially what we're always trying to do, is we have this wonderful body of teachings that have come down to us, and sometimes it can sound a little esoteric or a little mystical or somewhat dry or confusing, and yet these are very very practical and very powerful teachings that many of us have already experienced immense transformation through the application of these teachings. So what is this? Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. I want to begin with a a passage that uh, from a very famous Uh, Zen master, and all of us really love this particular uh, teaching very, very much. And it's one that can be studied over again and over again and over again. So I just, it's a 15 stanza teaching from the third Zen patriarch and in in China, the third Zen patriarch. And um, I only want to read the first one and a half stanzas. It's, a, it's, it's quite long with the 15 stanzas, but each stanza is so rich and so full that every, each one is a teaching. But this is the one that I want. I want to begin with this one to kind of point to this non-clinging mind. And it starts like this. It says, The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. That's how it starts. 
if you really listen to that, if you really take it in, I know the first time I ever heard it, I had a little bit of a reaction. I thought, no, preferences? You know, how is it even possible to live that way? But I'll go on and read the rest of it. So the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. The way is perfect like vast space, where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. Indeed, it is due to our choosing to accept or reject that we do not see the true nature of things. And so it's really all right there as we keep contemplating and looking at this. When he says the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences, I think that it might be more accurate to say it this way, that the great way is not difficult for those who don't cling to their preferences. So I think really what it's, as we, over time, many of us has, have really contemplated that first line and really how, how, what does it mean and how do we really apply that to our own uh, life. And, and I think it really is about the not clinging. Of course we're going to have preferences uh, we're going to be attracted to certain things and we're going to be not be attracted to other things or like certain things and not like other things because that's just sort of a, a way that our personality expresses itself. And, and there's fun in that. There's play in that. But the, but the difficulty arises when we hold on to our preferences. And to the extent that we hold on gives rise to our pain and our suffering. So when we hold on, we suffer. And the extent that we hold on will, will bring about more or less suffering. And again, that's a simplified way of understanding where our suffering arises from. I also was sitting those early three-month retreats that James was talking about last night and has referred to a few times. And it made me, when he was referring back to those early days in the late 70s and early 80s, I remembered one time when I was uh, sitting the three-month course and at IMS in the East Coast. And one thing that can happen is the mind gets very still and very concentrated so that we're able to see things fairly clearly that arise in the mind and the the feelings and the expressions that happen. And I remember this one evening, uh, later in the evening, down in the basement that was where we did our walking meditation. And it was quite a large basement room And there were these old, large carpets on the floor, about three of them. And I would do my walking meditation along the line, along the edge of one of the carpets, because I like to have some kind of 
kind of guide in the, in the straight line. And I remember I, I was just minding my own business and walking back and forth. And the thought arose, because I was not too far away from the other carpet, the thought arose, oh, I like that carpet better. That just has a nicer color. It has a nicer texture. I want to walk on that carpet. I don't want to walk on this carpet. Now, that would have been a very kind of innocent kind of thought that arose, but it was because I was in a fairly concentrated state, it really had a reverberation. And I thought, what difference does it make if I'm walking on this carpet or I'm walking on that carpet? And I really, really took that in. It was the contemplation. I thought, what was that that just happened? Why would I even consider I'm doing my walking meditation very well, very smoothly here. Why would I move over to the next carpet? And I I considered the fact that, I mean, the reason I would do that is because it would feel a little bit better. It'd be a little bit better feeling. It would be a little nicer texture, nicer color, And just that simple movement of mind of wanting to go over to something that just felt a little bit better. Now, I think it's a very benign example. There wasn't any real harm or or pain that arose from that. But because it was so clear in my mind, I could see that's what happens. That's what starts to disturb the stillness or the steadiness. It's like, ah, that. Oh, yeah, I'll go over there. Or I'll try that, or I'll have that. And, and in a way, everything was fine to begin with. And then the mind starts to move, and the mind starts to get this idea. And goes, oh, that. And then the body starts to follow the thought and the intention and starts to move to something else. This happens so many times in the day that most of the time we're not very conscious of it, we're not really paying attention to it, and usually many, many times it's not really causing much difficulty in us. But when we start to see what's actually pulling us and moving us in these directions, we we start to have a little bit more insight about what what is it, what's, what's pulling us. And we can feel some of that move towards the better feeling. I just want to feel a little bit better than I feel now. So when you you look at your own experience here on the retreat, I mean, I wonder what kinds of things come to mind of just how you might just get pulled, you know, like doing your walking meditation. This has happened so many times, like, oh, I think I'll go get a cup of tea. Or I think I'll go walk down to the meadow. Or... I think I'll go lie down and take a nap. And it's just something pulls us away. And a lot of times, we're not really looking very clearly at what's going on. And it may be that something's happening that we don't want to feel, that we don't want to attend to. Or it might be some kind of unpleasant experience that's arising, and we just say, oh, I'll go over there. And as our mind starts to get a little bit more quiet, and we start to pay attention to this, we can sense, what is this? What is moving us? What are we moving towards and what are we moving against? The Buddha was often called a physician because it was considered that he cured the ailments of his disciples. 
And in a way, the realization of the truth of the non-clinging and really deeply understanding the non-clinging is like taking a medicine that provides a kind of immunity from what's called the diseases of our mind. Diseases is kind of a strong word. I think I I like to kind of broaden that out, kind of dis-ease, you know, the dis-ease that we, we feel in our own mind. And what are those diseases? What are, how does our mind get tormented? Classically, in the teachings, there are three diseases, diseases or torments of the mind. And much of what we look at, much of what we study, is in regard to these three powerful forces of the mind. And these three are the the force of greed, the force of aversion or hatred, and the force of delusion or confusion. And these are the three, in in Pali they're called the kalesas, the defilements of the mind, the forces of the mind that take over. And for the most part, we become somewhat unconscious with these forces, and we are pulled by these forces in different directions. And so often we don't even know what's moving us, what's what's pulling us, what's controlling us. We might just feel the pain or the suffering or the, the, the dis-ease or the discomfort and not even know why, not even understand what's going on. And usually, and for the most part, one of these forces are, are moving in the mind. And what are these how I want to talk just a little bit about each one. And in a way, I'm giving you a very brief summary of some of the very basic uh, teachings of the Buddha so you can have a kind of a, um, a model to begin to understand the practice that you're doing and how to actually investigate your own experience, investigate and understand your own experience. So the first one, the force of greed and how that moves in the mind. What is the actual experience of the greed or that that strong desire that moves through the mind and body experience? When we consider it, I think each of us know what it is, but perhaps we haven't looked at it very closely, very clearly. The greed, the greed that moves in the mind is a force that actually pulls us forward. Oftentimes we think of it as toppling forward. I think I talked about it in the opening night where we, we in, in life we often feel like we're toppling forward in our, in our life where we almost lose balance within ourselves because we're just pulled towards things that seem to be outside of ourselves. It's, it's, a, it's a, a kind of force where we feel like uh, uh, we want to take possession of things. We want it for me. You know, this is mine. I want this. And, it, and it's a way we uh, create a kind of separation where something is really going to give us something that we want. And we, get, we can get very caught up in that attachment to that thing giving us what we want, we want it to give us. 
Sometimes the word desire is used, but I think that's not a very good translation because actually desire can also be for good things or wholesome things. But it's a kind of blind desire. Sometimes the word is tanha in Pali, and and the word's often translated as a a thirst or an ambition uh, towards something, but it, it takes over in the mind. I want to tell you a, a little story of something that happened on the... Uh, we, we have month-long courses here now at, at Spirit Rock. And this past March, there was a, a woman who was uh, sitting... Uh, the, I think she was sitting two months. And, and towards the end of her, of her retreat, she, um, she really loved the nature around here. And so uh, one day when she, the, the water was running, the water runs in March and the rivers, the rivers and the creeks are flowing, and she saw this really beautiful rock in one of the creeks down at the, uh, by, by Upeka over there. And people were making little rock sculptures as well around, you know, where you can get rocks and kind of pile them up and set them up. Well, she got this, she took this rock out of the stream, and she put it on this sculpture. And she really, loved, she, she really admired the rock and loved the rock and had a very special relationship with it. After a couple of days, the rock was gone. It wasn't on the sculpture anymore. And she noticed that she went into a little bit of a frenzy about it. It's like, what happened to my rock? All of a sudden, it was her rock, and somebody else had taken her rock. Well, a few days went by, and she was really wondering what happened to it and all that. And then then she saw that the rock had actually returned. And she she left me this note, because she was talking about this in her interview and saying just how she was really recognizing how she was getting so possessed and that it became her rock. It was a rock that was sitting in the stream. It didn't belong to anybody. And then all of a sudden, it just she, she started to have this really intense relationship with it. And so she, when the rock wound up back on the sculpture, this, this is what she wrote me. She said, Dear Sharda, the rock tale continues. Enclosed is a note I found under the rock on the rock sculpture. I, I took the rock, asked the stream's forgiveness, and returned it to the place from which I took it. I feel grateful to have had the opportunity. I glory in the ways of this universe. And, and then there was just this note underneath the rock that said, Sorry, I should have known this was somebody's special rock. Thanks for the loan. <laughs> rock napper. <laughs> So I'm not actually sure what happened for him. I'm assuming it's a him. Maybe it was a woman. Um, that he realized after a few days. <laughs> Why am I assuming it's a man? <laughs> I, <laughs> I just get myself in the hot seat there. <laughs> so who knows what was going on for him, but somehow he realized this person realized that it might have belonged to somebody and brought, put it back in with this note. 
maybe she put up a note. I'm not sure if there was a way that she put up a note and said, did anybody see my rock? <laughs> but it's, uh, she, she learned so much from that experience. It was just so powerful for her to see how she took ownership of something that was just sitting in the creek. And uh, two days, four days, and, you know, just became such a... She got so wrapped up in the whole thing. And she was very, very concentrated and very much with her practice while this was going on. So, so this, this we, stick, we can stick a label so easily. We just stick a label on something. And we say, this is mine. Hmm? And that's that, that's, it's, that's, it, it's, it's, a, it's this, the, this movement of, of, of this desire or this greed where we want to take ownership of things around us. This is the, the force of that, the, the mind of greed. Now the opposite, another force, also happens, which is the aversion or the hatred. And what's the experience when we have this aversion or this hatred in the mind. And you all know it. You all know it. It's the opposite. It's the not wanting. The not wanting or the resistance to something that's happening where we want to push the experience away. We want to push the thing away. And in both cases, it's called grasping because we're, grasping is the contraction and we feel the contraction both in the, the pulling towards us or the pushing away from us. It both requires a kind of tightness, a, a tensing, a contraction in the body and in the mind in order to pull or push something towards us or away. And so in both cases, it's a form of a grasping mind, grasping to that which we like and grasping to that which we don't like. The, the aversion often manifests as the resistance, and we can feel it. It's something that both with the, with the greed and with the resistance, you can begin to really feel the experience in your body. And it's, it's not just a mental kind of experience, but it's, as we practice, it's really good to begin to experience what is the energetic sense in the body, when, we, when these are moving through our mind, when we feel this strong desire to have something or the strong desire not to have something, and to see if we can actually get in touch with the way that the body and the mind tighten and contract and pull in. And this is our signal that there's a way that we might be caught in this attachment, in the attached mind. The third one is the, is the delusion or the confusion. I like the word confusion better because I can relate to it. I really know, I can recognize when my mind is confused. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of delusion where um, I, I, I don't know what I want. It's sort of, it's a confusion and a, sometimes a bit of a disconnection, uh, not seeing things very clearly. And we can feel a bit out of touch when this force of mind is operating. The, the confused mind is a mind that spins around in circles, uncertain or afraid to push or pull on something, unsure whether to hold on or push away. 
It's a, it's a kind of a, can be sometimes a bit of a, a frozen state where we're not really responding, we're not really relating to what's occurring. And usually, for the most part, most people are stronger with one of these than another. So some people might have more tendency towards a, a greed, a greedy mind. Some people have more tendency towards an aversive mind. And some people are just a bit more of a confused type. And so you might consider, as you sit here, if you have a sense of which one you might fall into. Of course, some people might recognize that all three are strong in their mind, and that's possible too. But you might want to look and see, is there a tendency? Do you have a particular tendency to, to be pulled by one or another of these, these, these particular torments? And it's these contracted states of mind, these torments of mind, that actually gives us the feeling of I. When these states are arising, we have the feeling of me. There's a me here. There's an I here. And I want this. I don't want this. Or I'm confused about this. Or conversely, the feeling and identification with the sense of I or mine gives rise and reinforces these, these uh, mind states of greed, hatred, and delusion. So they kind of, this is, this, is, this is how this sense of myself actually comes into formation through the manifestation of these strong states of mind. And so you can imagine when these aren't playing, when I'm not, when I'm, I'm, in an, um, I'm, I'm having an experience of what we could call non-greed, or we're an experience of non-aversion, where that isn't activated, or there's no delusion. So when there's no delusion or confusion, we're, we're present, we're connected, we're here. We're not being pulled towards anything, we're not aversive towards anything. We're just resting into our experience just as it is. And when we do that, there isn't so much of a strong sense of me in the experience. It's more just the unfolding of what's happening. Whatever it is, whether I'm walking down the path or I'm in the woods or I'm talking to a friend, if I'm not so caught up in these particular manifestations, there's a simplicity, there's an ease, there's a way of fully being in the experience in a way that we can say there's not so much of a sense of me and other or, or, or self and other. It's just this kind of lovely experience that's unfolding in a particular moment. And we, we have a sense that the self isn't so strong in those moments. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's very uh, helpful to begin to recognize in our experience when we aren't actually that disturbed, where we don't feel disturbances within our when, when it, within ourself, because I think so often that when we're not disturbed in some way, when when one of those forces aren't activated, we can kind of f- forget a little bit to pay attention, which then we call kind of going into a little bit confused and a little bit of confusion because we're we're not actually quite as alert and bright and connected to what's occurring. 
So the more that we begin to pay attention to the times where we do feel at ease, something starts to, we start to know the experience of selflessness a little bit more clearly. What is that? What is that experience when I'm not caught in wanting, when I'm not caught in the not wanting, which is also the judgment that, that James talked about last night. The judgment is a strong manifestation of the aversion of the not wanting of pushing away. When the judge isn't activated, when I'm really present, I'm really here, what happens in your experience at those times? Can you be there? Can you be present for that? I remember for such a long time how I really think I just didn't pay attention when things were okay. It was like, good, you know, now, you know, now I don't have to worry about anything. And I would just kind of just drift along a little bit until something would hit. I'd hit up against something again, and I, now I've really got to pay attention. But it's not a kind of paying attention where I have to be effortful or I have to uh, work hard or, you know, strive to pay attention. But in that state where there is an ease in in the mind, it's almost as if the quality of attention is manifesting by itself. There's a quality, a spontaneity, a kind of a a natural expression of being that is already happening, that includes an alertness, that includes an an awakeness, that includes a connection with what's happening. In those moments, we may even say that we don't even need to bring up a self that needs to be mindful in those moments. Somebody who has to do something to be mindful but rather we can just kind of relax, relax into an effortless being, an effortless connection to what's occurring. So I think a good example of this is oftentimes when we're walking in nature, sometimes we can let go. And I think one, why, that's why people love being out in nature so much, because there's something that can shift inside where we can relax a little bit more and open to the beauty and to the wonder. And, and as we do that, there's a way that our senses become a little bit more heightened. We become a little bit more, or sometimes a lot more, connected to what's happening around us. And we, we feel different. We actually start to feel different in ourselves. And we feel often in a way that we really like We feel good, we feel awake, we feel healthy. And in a way, this is um, a manifestation as the sense of our self starts to loosen up a little bit. That sense of who I take myself to be or how I think about myself, it just starts to to soften a little bit. And those, those, those boundaries of I'm here and the nature is there, I'm just using that as an example at the moment, just starts to dissolve. Some of those, this, that sense of separation just starts to loosen up a little bit. And we just find ourselves in a more total experience. And we don't need to pay attention. You know, at those times we don't need to work 
at our mindfulness or work at our, our meditation, but that is more like something naturally is expressing itself in those moments. Something innate, something, uh, uh, something really coming from the, 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 the source of our being, the, the true nature of our being in those moments are expressing it themselves. And I, my sense is this happens a number of times through the day for you while you're here. These times where you do come into a little bit more of a sense of natural ease. And I'm talking about this because I want you to recognize these moments, kind of bring them a little bit more into awareness, highlight them into your awareness, and to sense that sense of how the sense of the self starts to loosen up a little bit. One of the great attachments is this attachment to the sense of self, to this idea of self. And the Buddha talks quite a lot about this attachment to the view of self. And of course, I think this is the most difficult attachment that we have because it's so conditioned. We believe that we are a fixed entity that moves through space and time. An entity that says, I am born and I will die. We have a beginning and we have an ending. But one of the wonderful things about our meditation practice is we can begin to challenge this view, this view of this solid sense of myself. Because as we really begin to look closely, and this is what we do when we come and we sit on the pillow, we look, what is, what's here? What's going on? And what we can often see, and it doesn't take a lot of concentration to be able to see it, is we see that actually things are changing all the time. We can't necessarily find anything that is static anything that is fixed. When we look carefully, we see that the change is actually happening very quickly. And the change is our thoughts and our feelings and our sensations and the sounds and sights and tastes and smells and touches. Moment to moment to moment, these changes are happening. And the truth is, is that these changing conditions aren't actually referring back to any solid sense of self. We can actually investigate this and we can ask ourselves, where is this core of myself? Where is it located? Where do I find it? Where is it? We may be able to recognize and see as we look more carefully all these changing conditions to see that actually this reality is a selfless reality. And nothing in this world, not just here, but nothing in this world is fixed. Nothing in this world is solid or static. Even though things may appear that way. We have the appearance of things, but we look carefully, we use this tool of investigation, we we use the tool of our mindfulness and our awareness to look carefully to see what's true, to see what's true. 
when we start to experience ourselves and our world in this truer way, in this everything's changing moment to moment to moment, we start to experience that everything is living, is breathing, is pulsating, is alive. We start to tap into an aliveness that is not only an energetic aliveness that we can feel inside of ourselves, but we start to experience that aliveness that is all around, everywhere. And again, that sense of the boundary of, the, of that I stop here and everything else starts there, we start to even feel that gets a little less solid. We feel more and more the sense of dynamism, this dynamic connection, this dynamic relationship to all things in every moment that starts to come alive for us. And there are times, again, I'm sure that you've had this experience where you feel this. You know, something starts to awaken. Something starts to come alive for you. And it's a good feeling. We like it. And we're tapping into, we start to feel into the dynamism of who we are the dynamism of our being, and as well as the dynamism of this whole nature in which we live, where the boundaries of self and other begin to drop away, begin to soften, begin to loosen. This is from my teacher, uh, Hamid Ali, from the, uh, the uh, Ridwan School, the Diamond Heart School. He says, it is possible to see that everything that happens is a creativity, is the process of life itself moving, changing, transforming. He says, suffering occurs from taking a position or taking a view, taking a position that is rigid and goes against life's movement and change. In a a way, that's what we do. We take a position. That's the ego. The ego takes a position and says, it's like this. I'm like this. This is who I am. This is what's happening. This is how things are. And we get caught or attached or identified to that view. And then that becomes our reality. Our reality gets small and limited and narrow because of the view because of the view of mostly who I take myself to be and how I view reality from that position, from that location. And what we're doing here is beginning to loosen up our views, all of our views, hopefully, because we get quite attached to our views. The Buddha talks about that as another one of our great attachments, as our attachment to our views and opinions. This is what Ajahn Chah said, one of, a great, one of the great Thai uh, masters, uh, Jack Cornfield's uh, teacher as well. When asked what greatest hindrance his students had, he said, opinions, views, and ideas about things. Their minds are filled with opinions about things. They are too clever to listen to others. It is like water in a cup. If the cup is filled with dirty, stale water, It is useless. Only after the old water is thrown out can the cup become useful. 
You must empty your minds of opinions. Then you will see. How many views do you think you've had today? Just contemplate that for a moment. (laughs) Views of how your meditation is going. How How you're doing here. How the retreat is going, you know, just to start with that one, you know. And, and sometimes that view can become so believable. Like this, the retreat, you know, just isn't going well. You know, I don't know, you know, it's a bad time for me or I've got too much going on in my life. This isn't a good time for me to practice, whatever it is. The way we start evaluating and then forming some kind of view about how we're doing, what we're doing, who we are as you know, what kind of meditators we are. Or the opposite, you know, I'm like James was talking about last night, I'm doing good. You know, I'm really, my practice is really going well. And then noticing how we want to hold on to that. You know, make it into something, build up some kind of meaning about ourself or who I am as a meditator. You know, or how many views we've had about other people. You know, and what, how their practice is going, and whether they're doing well or not doing well. And James talked a lot about comparing mind last night, and what the what suffering that causes ultimately for ourselves and for others. So many views, views that we we think we know what's going on. We think we know, you know, that. Uh, you know, I'm just trying to get a sense of when I get caught in my mind states, they become so believable. You know, the stories or whatever it is that might be going through my mind become so believable until something just shakes it for a moment and I go, oh yeah, that's just my story or that's just my view and I can let go a little bit. I don't have to hold on so tightly to it. So we're challenging our views of things. This is from Kalu Rinpoche, one of our favorite, whatever it is, pieces of prose teachings or whatever to read. He says, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you understand this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you understand this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. With a capital E, that is all. Zen master Dogen, the 13th century Japanese Zen master, said, to study Buddhism is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by myriad things. And I think that's really beautiful because it means that as we forget ourself, we come into contact with life. With, with the 
manifestation of life in all of its forms, in all of its changes, in all of its expressions. And we become enlightened, we become awakened as we come into relationship with life. And it's all of life, in all of its forms, in all of its uniqueness, in all of its diversity. Because we want to select out what we like and what we don't like, what we want to come in contact with and what we don't want to come in contact with. And we see the suffering that this causes in our world in great dimensions. I like this person. I don't like that person. I like this person of color. I don't like this person of color. Or whatever it is, how we create all of these kinds of distinctions, all these kinds of preferences that creates such incredible suffering for us in this world. So we begin to open. We we begin to come into relationship with all that is occurring in our mind, in our body, in our emotions, in our experience, inside and outside. That's what we're attempting to do. As we cultivate our mindfulness, as we cultivate our attention, we, can, we, we have this tool that brings us into relationship so that we can begin to see where are we getting caught in our preferences and our likes and our dislikes and our attachments and our wantings and our not wantings. How, how does that happen? And we can begin to really understand how this happens so that perhaps we don't get quite as caught in these habitual tendencies of our mind. We want to put the light of our awareness on ourselves so we can see what is giving rise to the pain and the suffering that I feel within myself. How can I actually bring about the end of suffering, which is the end of the path? The end of the spiritual path is the end of suffering once and for all. This is what's possible for us, is to come to the end of this dukkha realm. Dukkha is the the word for suffering or for uh, the unsatisfactory nature of this life that we live. How, what can I do to bring an end to this difficult life that I feel that I'm living. So our whole objective in our practice is to cut through the grasping, to cut through the way that we find ourselves getting caught in the clinging, in the holding. Sabe dhamma nalam abhini vesaya. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. At the end of most of the Buddhist text, his discourses, the texts are are made up of a number of his discourses that he gave to his disciples. And at many, many, many times at the end of his discourses, he would say, the Buddha would say, once one understands the teachings, the Buddha says, he abides independent, not clinging to anything in this world. This is the free one. This is the awakened one. He abides independent, 
not clinging to anything in this world. So perhaps we can look at this a little bit while we're here in these next few days. Just really getting a sense of how does that, how does the clinging come into the body, into the mind? What does it feel like? How do I, how can I know it? And when we might feel the contraction or the tightness arising of the, of the holding on or the pushing away, through the recognition, perhaps we might be able to help soften that grip through the breath. The breath is such a valuable resource. Breathing, breathing in and then breathing out. And with that breathing out, we can just let go. Or at least maybe if we can't let go, we can help ourselves to soften, to just melt that tension, that contraction, that tightness just a little bit more. And as we do that, perhaps there might be a little bit more spaciousness. It might give us just a little more millimeter of space to be able to see what's happening in our mind or our body and to be able to relate to our experience just a little bit differently. Each time we take that breath, each time we have the intention to be present, to be mindful, the intention to let go is very, very powerful. The effect is not only very powerful in our own mind, but the ripples go out in ways that we can't even imagine. Just one moment, one intention to be mindful of letting go. So let's just sit for a couple of minutes together. Just recognizing what's happening in your experience right now. And see if you can open to it without rejecting and without holding on. Let it be just as it is. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.